Thank you for uh, participating in that. Those were sweet, sweet, sweet words. And uh, as I thought about us reading these passages, I, I don't know if you thought about this, but you know, why did you choose to read what you chose to read? And if you're like me, uh, I chose to, to read a passage, and, and I think you probably did too, because those words are the very hope of our lives. Like That is what we cling to in a very uh, crazy, chaotic, threatening, uncertain world that is marred by sin. I think that's the reason that God spoke into history when he did and how he did, was to give his people words of hope. Now, I I have to ask you the question as we start this series, and I think this is one of the most important questions of life, and that is, where does your hope ultimately reside? Who or what represents the central source of hope in your life? And the answer to this question is honestly found more in how we live than what we profess. I don't mean that professing is not important. It it really is. But the best way to see inside of our profession is to look at how we, we choose to live day in and day out and Not just in the best of times, in the worst of times, but just in the normal times. Just when we're going through a normal day. The basis of our hope is confirmed in those moments where all hope seems lost. Like, what do you cling to when there's nothing else to cling to? Frederick Nietzsche uh, said this, hope in reality is the worst of all evils because it prolongs the torments of man. Now, I don't think he was talking about biblical hope. I think he was talking about worldly hype. And there's a great difference between the two. Worldly hype, which is false hope, is really just wishful thinking. It's just pie in the sky, cross your fingers... Lottery living that melts under the heat of hardship. It's really just rolling the dice and hoping for the best. That's worldly hype, and we hear it and we see it all around us all of the time. But that is not biblical hope. Biblical hope is something else altogether, as we'll see, hopefully, this morning. Only hope with God as its source can stand up to the difficult uncertainties of life. Everything else fails. Here's a definition of hope for you. Hope is confidence in a preferred future promised by one who is trustworthy. Hope is confidence in a preferred future. There is a future that we want, all of us. But that future is not one that we just dreamed up on our own. It's not a figment of imagination. It's actually something promised. And lots of people make promises, but this one was made by one who is trustworthy. 
And that brings us to the book of Isaiah, where some of those promises are held and proclaimed. And I'll tell you this, this morning we are going to be flying through a whole lot of material. This is an introduction. This is really just to set the stage for our series. And so um, relax, there'll be a lot of details and dates and passages and all kinds of stuff going on. Uh, It's going to be recorded, so you can go back and listen again if you need to. Um, But we're going to try and get as much of a foundation laid as possible so that we can begin our study through this book next week. It's the fourth largest book of the Old Testament, and it's included with a group of four books, all called the Major Prophets, simply because of their size. You have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. This book is quoted more than any other book from the Old Testament in the New Testament other than Psalms. So uh, the New Testament apostles uh, were very affectionate about the words of Isaiah. Its content speaks directly to events spanning over three centuries of time, and it contains more specific references to Christ than any other Old Testament book in terms of specifically anticipating his coming in the Old Testament. It is theologically vast and profound. From a literary perspective, it is almost without peer. You can ask people who have no belief in God and who couldn't give a rip about the Bible, but they will talk about Isaiah as a masterpiece from a literary perspective. Some have called it the Romans of the Old Testament. You know, we just covered Romans, so now we're just going to get the Romans in the Old Testament, put those two together. It's also been called the fifth gospel. There's a lot of gospel in Isaiah, if you didn't realize it. So we're excited about covering it. The book begins very simply with a, a title of sorts, where Isaiah introduces himself and what uh, is going to follow. So this is just chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So let's work our way through that opening statement and begin to learn a little bit about this amazing book. The Isaiah's name literally means Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh saves. So that's a little bit of a hint about what we're going to find in this book, right, in the name of Isaiah. We're told he's the son of Amos, which honestly doesn't tell us much. Uh, there's not a whole lot of history around him, and so it's actually hard to know much about Isaiah in terms of his family of origin. Some have suggested that he may have been related to royalty. He certainly had great access there. His writing demonstrates uh, an ed- a great education. He, he really knows how to communicate in a, a very sophisticated way. Uh, but generally speaking, most of the uh, suggestions about who he was and where he came from are really speculative. So what we do learn about Isaiah is really just what he tells us about himself, where he was, what he did, who he spoke with, uh, a lot of those kinds of things. So that's most of what we have. He does mention that he was married. He had two sons. 
with some pretty spectacular names that were prophetic. How would you like that? God says, I don't care what kind of names you like for your kids. I'm just going to tell you to name them in light of the prophecies that you're going to give the king. Well, that's how he named uh, his two sons. We'll learn more about that later. But he's a family man. I want you to notice that it mentions the vision of Isaiah. And I want you to notice that the word is singular there, the vision. And yet the book is filled with visions, oracles, declarations made to kings and to the nation, even to other nations. So it's the idea that this overarching vision which starts in chapter 1 and ends in chapter 66, is really a compilation of many visions which really see that singular vision from a lot of different perspectives. A word about prophets and prophecy. Isaiah was a prophet and he spoke words of prophecy to the people of his day. Um, Prophets were God's spokespersons. They were literally a megaphone to uh, their context. And they did two things. Often they did forth-telling, which you could also say is truth-telling to uh, their people. But then they also did foretelling, which was telling the truth about the future. And those were often blended together. So that's exactly what Isaiah was doing with the people of his day. Now, when you think about a prophetic vision, you need to think about a way of seeing, right? Vision, seeing, perceiving everything in life according to the perfect wisdom of God instead of the flawed wisdom of man. Like all of us go through life with impaired vision. I mean, we see what's going on around us, right? You could tell me what's happening, what has happened in history, in our culture, uh, in our own city, in our own neighborhood. Like we see everything. But this is talking about seeing with an understanding of what is unseen. It's seeing what's going around us in light of what is behind it. Or over it. That's exactly what Isaiah is doing. He's taking us behind the veil. So that we might see the significance of what was happening in his day. The prophetic vision of the Bible is our link with reality. Not imagination. Not a fairy tale, as some in the world might suggest, but this is as real as it will ever be. It doesn't get any more real than this. And uh, in chapter 2, verse 5, Isaiah expresses this invitation. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. That's exactly what we're going to do as we go through this book is... We're going to invite God to shine a light on what we see so that we might see it more clearly than we've ever seen it before. So this is the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, real historical places at a time in history that was pretty interesting for the people of God. And for uh, 
men are mentioned here, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. These were kings of Judah. And so that's our reference for time. And Isaiah is often speaking to these kings. He is their advisor. He is their go-between so that they might, as God's leader on earth, they need to hear from God so that they can lead effectively. Now, these kings were all in Judah, and we're going to get to this in just a moment, but that's the southern region of the, the larger nation of Israel. We'll talk about the divided king in a moment, but let, divided kingdom, but let me tell you about these four kings. Um, Uzziah, which uh, he dies right at the beginning of Isaiah's ministry. So he doesn't do a whole lot during his ministry, but he's a good king. He lived from 792 to 740. He did um, what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to his father Amaziah. So that's what a king ought to do. (laughs) He ought to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And those kings that did led well. Those kings that didn't, did not. So you'll see that Jotham uh, also did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Except for one thing is mentioned here. Hezekiah had a moment of arrogance where he went into the temple in a way that he wasn't supposed to as a king. And that arrogance was corrected with an illness that we'll read about later. But I think Jotham learned from that mistake. And so we're told that he led as his father led, but avoided that, uh, that problem of arrogance. Then we have Ahaz. And Ahaz didn't do so well. It says he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father has done, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. The northern kingdoms departed from uh, the larger kingdom and the kingdom of God, the, the 12 tribes were split. And the northern kingdoms were known for being evil kings. In other words, they did what was right in their own eyes. They didn't do what the Lord commanded them to do. And Ahaz began to follow suit. The final king there, Hezekiah, corrected things in many ways. And he had his own issues, but he uh, brought Israel back into a place of following the Lord. So these are the four kings that Isaiah served. Uh, where t- Jewish leg- legends suggest that Isaiah was martyred by a king that followed Hezekiah, Manasseh. Um, so, and that was the end of his ministry from 740 to 690. Now we need to see Isaiah's ministry here and this book in a much larger history. So uh, it's good for us to know the larger story of the Old Testament. And we can go all the way back to about 2000 BC and the calling of Abraham and the beginning of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. Then we have Moses in 1500 and the great exodus where God's people are taken out from bondage to Egypt and taken to what God said was the promised land. That's the region where we're going to be throughout this entire book, the promised land. Then we have David, King David, uh, in 1000 BC. And he is the reference points for all these kings. He was God's king who every other king was to emulate until the king of kings would finally come.
Now we enter into, as we get to the book of Isaiah, the divided kingdom, which began in 930 BC. And then, of course, Isaiah begins his ministry uh, in the 8th century. But we have a northern kingdom. Here's on this map. The northern kingdom is in green. And uh, the capital of the northern kingdom, the throne of the northern kingdom, also referred to as Israel, is Samaria. So we're going to come across those names as we're going through this book. That's the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom is uh, in, in the capital of Judah. That's where the throne uh, is located in the southern kingdom. And these two kingdoms are at odds with each other. They are divided for a reason. And so we're going to see not only interactions between all of the Jewish people and the rest of the world, but even with each other. A little bit of history that we're going to cover as we go through here. These two kingdoms were located within the larger uh, Mediterranean region. And during this time, while they're conflicted with each other, Assyria was growing as an empire. It was growing very powerful and very aggressive. They were seeking to expand. And so there are going to be threats from Assyria. And these two kingdoms are going to respond differently. Uh, the northern kingdom is going to stand against Assyria and ultimately pay the price for that. Ahaz was the king in the southern region, and this is part of where he went wrong. He formed an alliance with Assyria. And so that protected the southern kingdom from the north. They, with Assyria, took out the northern kingdoms and sent them into exile, but that left Judah and uh, the southern kingdom paying tribute to Assyria. They formed an alliance with a worldly nation, which God had commanded them not to do. Eventually, Assyria threatens the southern kingdom, and at that time, Hezekiah is the reigning king. And he actually stands up to Assyria. And that's a huge uh, demonstration of faith and trust. And God rewards that. God honors that and protects the southern kingdom, at least for that season. And so Assyria is pushed off. And then this other empire begins to emerge, Babylon. Babylon begins to spread and expand, and they begin to rival Assyria. And it's interesting, at the end of the Assyrian conflict with the southern kingdom, uh, Hezekiah does this strange thing. He invites ambassadors from Babylon in to see all of the riches of Judah. In a, in a very arrogant kind of way, he begins to show them all that they have, all that God has given them. And so while Assyria fades, Babylon emerges, and Babylon likes what they saw. And so eventually, because Judah begins to drift spiritually, morally, and otherwise, uh, God uses Babylon to eventually take the southern kingdom into exile and uh, Jerusalem is destroyed. Uh, finally, this period of history ends with another empire growing, and we're going to see a reference to King Cyrus, who is a Persian king. The Persian Empire grows and takes over the entire region, ultimately returns the remnant to Jerusalem, and also takes out Babylon. So isn't it amazing just to think about all? This is over hundreds and hundreds of years. But, but I think Isaiah 
And God, more importantly, wants us to see that through all of these hundreds of years of history, God is at work. He's accomplishing his purposes through his people and through nations that want nothing to do with them, but they ultimately serve his aim. And that brings us to a portrait of God. That's the most important thing about Isaiah is that we get a clear picture of who he is and what he's like. And he is described in a lot of ways, but here are three important words that you can write down and keep in mind as we're going through the book. First of all, he is described as holy, holy, set apart, unlike any other. He has no peer. He has no rival. He is alone God. He's also sovereign and, and I think we need to think about this very carefully because oftentimes sovereignty is simply about control. We just tend to think of it as a power thing. Certainly God is all powerful. But there is great wisdom in the sovereignty of God because he's using all of history, all of humanity, everything on earth, all of it serves his ultimate will. So nothing is happening outside of his control, but it's not just about him having control. It's about him using that to accomplish his glorious purposes. So he is holy, he's sovereign. And then finally, maybe the most surprising thing of all is he's benevolent. Unlike any other gods that any other uh, nation might have spoken of, this all-powerful God actually does good for his people often in spite of their unfaithfulness. This God uses his power for good. Isaiah's favorite designation for God is the Lord of hosts. That appears 62 times in the book. And twice, uh, once in chapter 6 and then once in chapter 40, we're sort of ushered into the throne room or the presence of God in a very unique way. We do get to go behind the veil, so to speak, and we get to see him in his glory. And we get to hear from him what he is really most uh, committed to, most focused upon, what he is planning to do in and through his people and what he's calling them to do as his people. God is very obviously portrayed as sovereign, but he is um, preserving a people, a remnant. That's what we're going to see throughout this. Regardless of, of historical circumstances, he's always preserving this remnant of people who stand up to the threats of the world and stay faithful to him. It's interesting, um, Israel and Judah... The people of God, they often saw these emerging empires as a threat to them, but they're God's chosen people. Doesn't that seem strange? That, that you've been set apart by the God of the universe, the one who, who has done everything, and he's called you to be his servant to those nations that appear to be so threatening. And that's the dilemma that these people are always facing. That's the dilemma that we are always facing, isn't it? If you're in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, if you've entrusted your life to him, you're called to be a servant to the world, regardless of how threatening they may be. 
I mean, just think about the news right now, all that's going on around us, whether that's politically, economically, um, the health issues, financial issues, job issues, all of the things that you're experiencing in life in a broken world. And you are called by God as one of his chosen children to be a servant in the midst of that. It takes great faith in God to be who he claims to be. I mentioned earlier that God is causing all of history to serve his will. Barry Webb, who wrote a great commentary on the book of Isaiah, says this, history has meaning because God is taking it somewhere. And what the vision does is to set the end firmly before us and call us to live every moment in light of it. So we're going to be making our way through this book of Isaiah and we're going to be looking backward in a sense so that we can look forward. And we have a view that the people of Isaiah's day didn't have because all that he was saying to them hadn't yet happened. So they literally are just trusting in Isaiah and his word that how he says things are going to be, that's how things are going to be we get the incredible privilege of looking backward and seeing that all that Isaiah said would take place did. God did exactly what he promised he would do. Now, there are some things, particularly in the later part of the book, that haven't yet happened. They speak more to the, to the end of time. And so that's where we join the people of Isaiah's day and we trust that all that God says will happen, will happen. And our confidence that that is true is based upon all that we see happen as a result of Isaiah's prophecies and God's activity. Now God presented himself to his people as their only and greatest hope. And I I asked you the question at the beginning, where does your ultimate hope reside? And it's a tough question to ask. Because in our minds, when we're kind of in our right minds, right, we, we know that God is our only hope. But then when life gets hard, honestly, even when we get in times of great prosperity, we can very subtly begin to place our hope in other things. The people of Isaiah's day placed their hope in other nations, They actually placed their hope in other gods. Idolatry was rampant. And they ultimately placed their hope in themselves. So God speaks into that through the prophet Isaiah. Listen to chapter 29, 13. The Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, there's the profession, while their hearts are far from me and their fear for me is a commandment taught by men, kind of a mere commandment, a rule. Therefore, this is what God does. Behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people. With wonder upon wonder. And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish. And the discernment of their discerning men shall be hindered, hidden. God's ultimate wonder would be that he would provide a servant king, unlike and better than any of the expectations that anyone 
would ever have. Now, we know that person to be Christ, and we read the prophecies, particularly of Isaiah 52 and 53. We see Christ there. But God was preparing, he was anticipating a provision that he would make for these people way beyond anything that they ever had hoped for. He's a personal God committed to reaching, rescuing, and restoring a people, not only in Isaiah's day, but in our day. There is tremendous hope in this book. Now, one of the challenges that we'll face as we go through this book is is an issue of correlation. And in Bible study methods, that's part of the process. You do observation, you do interpretation, then you do correlation. And that is to say, how does something that I'm reading that happened thousands of years ago, how do I understand that in my contemporary context? And there are places where it's sort of a one-to-one correlation, I can just make a direct application. But there's other places where I need to recognize that that might have been a word particularly for those people at that time. I can still learn from that, but I have to be careful that I don't uh, misapply that to my day or to myself. So we'll help with that as we're going through here. Very specifically, I want to speak to this. We should be very careful not to correlate the United States with Judah. Okay? Let's be really clear about that. The United States, this nation, we are not God's chosen people. The best correlation that we can make with this Old Testament book is with the church. So you have God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, and then we have the church. And so that's where we need to be looking for application. The United States, honestly, this may break your heart, But we're a Gentile nation, not unlike Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Egypt and all the other nations that are going to be mentioned in this book. It doesn't mean that we have to be evil. It just means that we're not God's chosen nation. And that's very helpful when we try to make application as Christians and as a church. So we'll keep that in mind as we're making our way through this book. Well, let me give you an overview And you have Isaiah at a glance in your outline. I'm just going to very quickly look at the book in a very big uh, picture sort of way. It can be divided into two two parts, the first 39 verses and the last 27 verses in our chapters. And isn't that kind of interesting that our Bible is uh, divided in the same way? The first half uh, are prophecies of condemnation, kind of a doom and gloom sort of thing, getting the attention of these people. But then the last half, beginning in verse 40, are prophecies of comfort. So we have this beautiful contrast. In between is a a historical parenthesis where we actually see the siege of Jerusalem and Hezekiah's response as king to that threat and his faithfulness. So that's a beautiful picture of the right way that we ought to respond to the threats of this world. You can see from your chart there that the first has a number of prophecies against Judah, against the nations, uh, a reference to the day of the Lord, and then judgment and blessing. Then as we shift to the latter half, we see uh, a lot of statements about messianic hope. That's where we find this beautiful forward-looking portrait of God and his redemptive ways.
The focus here is on Israel and Judah, but specifically uh, Isaiah prophesied in Judah. He lived in Jerusalem. That was his focal point. And so he was speaking to the southern kingdom very specifically. And then the dates there, 740 to 680, are the span of his ministry. But just keep in mind, and this was really fascinating to me to think about, Isaiah speaking to centuries of history even beyond his own lifetime. And oftentimes, uh, some uh, critics of the Old Testament, in particular Isaiah, will say that 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 never could have happened. Isaiah didn't live long enough to make prophecies the way he did about times in which he never lived. But isn't that a beautiful statement of God's ability to speak through his people in a prophetic way? Not unlike John in the New Testament writing the book of Revelation. So it can be understood in that way. Now we have a tremendous opportunity to learn from these people about how they engaged their world. That's where we're gonna try and make some application in terms of how we trust God. As I mentioned earlier, God's people were trusting in the wrong things for security, all kinds of things. I like what Pastor Mark Deaver said. One of the most striking things in the book of Isaiah is the tenacity of God's love for his unfaithful people. God maintains a perfect balance between his righteousness and his love. And so we're going to look backward into this history so that we can look forward, rightly trusting in our God for the, for the security that only he can provide. Well, let me shift our attention now to, uh, in some ways, kind of a so what on the front end of this series. These are some things that I hope that we'll be thinking about as we go through this book. This book is about hope in its purest form. And uh, while that's talked about a lot in the book of Isaiah, it's also the whole theme of the New Testament. And so I want to remind us of some things related to hope as we uh, finish up this morning. Hebrews 6, 19 through 20 says this, we have as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Just think about Isaiah maybe even particularly Isaiah 6, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. As we go through this book, Isaiah is really holding out hope for a savior. He's telling people that God can be trusted and this kind of hope, the kind of the biblical hope, not worldly hype, biblical hope, it changes how we see ourselves. It changes what we value. It affects what we do with our lives. It gives us joy and peace, even in the worst of circumstances. Hope gives us protection, it gives us strength and courage and boldness. It gives us endurance, comfort, confidence, even in the face of death. That's what hope does for us while we're living in this in-between place. Before we get to that place where our greatest hopes 
will be realized for eternity. In the meantime, God wants us to live actively in light of our hope. John Piper says this, hope does not put us in a rocking chair where we complacently await the return of Jesus Christ. Instead, it puts us in the marketplace, on the battlefield, where we keep on going when the burdens are heavy and the battles are hard. Hope is not a sedative. It is a shot of adrenaline, a spiritual blood transfusion. That's our hope as we make our way through this book. I'll finish with this. Pastor Edward Mote wrote this in 1834, a familiar hymn that you've probably sung before. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. So let me give you a a few moments to begin, and I, I really mean just begin to ask and answer the question, where does your hope ultimately reside? Take a moment and consider that.